0: If you're ready to open your heart and step fully into the person God created you to be, then you're in the right place. Let's get started. Hello, and thank you for joining me on another episode of Candid Catholic Convos. This episode is part two of our brand new series focusing on the Eucharistic revival. Now, if you're listening to this wondering, what is a Eucharistic revival? Don't worry you're not alone. The Eucharistic Revival is a nationwide grassroots initiative by the USCCB and Catholics to restore understanding and devotion to the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. If you've seen the news or ventured out into your community, it's easy to see that the world is hurting. We need healing. We need hope. We need strength. And the Eucharist offers all of that. This national response to the Lord's call began on June nineteenth, 2022, the Feast of Corpus Christi, and will continue all the way until Pentecost 2025. There's a ton of great info and resources on eucharisticrevival.org, but today we're going to be talking about how you, right here, right now, can fall deeply in love with the Eucharist. Today, we're chatting with Father Ben Dunkelberger of Our Lady of the Visitation Parish in Shippensburg as he shares how his faith came alive through campus ministry and how he has, in turn, gotten involved in campus ministry on the other side as a priest to help the faith come alive for other young people. If you have any questions about the Eucharist you would like to have answered by one of our priests, be sure to send us a message on social media or our website, and we'll try to get it answered throughout the series. Father Ben, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really excited to have you here as part of our new series and kind of just bounce some of these questions off of you.
1: Definitely. Super excited.
0: Would you mind telling me a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. Yeah. So thank you, Rachel, so much. Um, Yeah. So I grew up uh, north of Carlisle in this diocese uh, in Perry County and uh, yeah, had a great experience growing up uh, with my family, three siblings. Two brothers, kind of really close in age. So for us, it was a lot of sports all the time growing up and really great. My mom was Catholic. My dad was not initially, but ended up coming into the church when we were in high school about. So that was a cool thing to see that happen. But I would say that we were, you know, we were into our faith. We were trying to be good Catholics, but it maybe wasn't as alive of a faith as it could have been in a certain sense. Right. So the deepest desires were. You know sports and maybe the outdoors as well, and hunting or whatever. So I went to the college. I went to college at the University of Pittsburgh and studied electrical engineering there. And so really had a great experience and kind of accidentally fell into a friend group that was really into their faith, a campus ministry there, and got really into my faith. Long story, but uh, through that experience, ended up asking kind of deeper questions and saying, okay, do I really believe all of this and having, you know, trying to pray for the first time in silence, for you know, in a long time and going back to confession and all of those different things. And so getting into my faith in college and really uh, through that, starting to then lead a Bible study. And uh, I think I got to my junior year and I said, okay, I need to ask God what he wants me to do. I always thought, you know, I'd be married and be an engineer and all of that. And so had that really deep discernment for about six to eight months between my junior and senior year of college as engineering was going very well and enjoying that. Uh, So God, what do you want me to do? Be an engineer or, you know, uh, uh, get married or be a missionary somewhere or whatever. So very long story again, but I ended up uh, eventually through a lot of prayer and I had adoration before the Eucharist. I know this is about the Eucharist a little bit. So adoration before the Eucharist was a big part of that too in prayer. But I eventually really felt called to at least... I thought maybe God was calling me to be a priest. And so I made that decision halfway through my senior year of, I really think I should at least enter the seminary and see. So I finished my degree in electrical engineering uh, at the University of Pittsburgh and then went to seminary at Mount St. Mary's down in Maryland, just south of Gettysburg, and really had a great six years there. I'd say about two years in, I said, yeah, I really think God's calling me to be a priest. And so uh, I was ordained in 2018 and sent as the assistant down at St. John the Baptist in New Freedom, south of York. Uh, and then and I was the chaplain at York College. And then I went a year and a half ago or so, almost two years now, to Shippensburg. So I'm pastor at Shippensburg uh, in Pennsylvania. That parish, Our Lady of the Visitation, and the campus minister of Shippensburg University. So it's been a great four years of priesthood. Um, yeah, really cool.
0: That's really awesome. I love that you were able to discover it while you were... On your path to something else and then yeah. you use that and you kind of went back and you got involved in campus ministry as a priest like i think that's right. coming full circle that's really awesome
1: yeah yeah it's really it's really been cool to, to to experience campus ministry um as a college student not too too long ago but then to be able to immediately as a young priest uh be doing that for for kids and there's such a deep desire at that age to discover yourself and to like you know, what is the world all about as you're getting out of the high school bubble of like, you know, all this stuff. And so it's, uh, yeah, it's really, really beautiful and meaningful to be able to help the college students to uh, ask those deep questions and to try to live their faith in college, which is a really unique time in life. So absolutely. all cool. well,
0: Definitely about finding yourself yeah. in college. Yeah. Figuring out what it is you want out of life. Mm hmm. So I've heard a lot of people talk about having a truly transformative experience when they receive the Eucharist at some point in their lives. You mentioned that you had an experience during adoration. Mm -hmm. Could you expand on that experience a little bit and about how the Eucharist changed you?
1: Definitely. Yeah, it's a really good question. I would say that I've had a ton of, you know, good and kind of powerful experiences, but a lot of them are not. Necessarily miraculous, I guess, in a certain way, but they're, you know, when you when you see the change over time, that's kind of the goal, I think, in a sense of the Eucharist is it's it's changing you internally over time, right? But I've certainly had a, a couple, at least, of just very powerful experiences um, that might be more of what people think in a certain sense of miraculous, I guess. But um, but yeah, one of the one of the ones. Uh, that I would say I was at a a big conference and there was adoration going on, but it was also uh, uh, Lexio Divina going on, which is really just uh, the words Lexio Divina are just divine reading in Latin. So they were reading from the Bible. It was actually Jesus being baptized. And uh, and so we're just praying, you know, before Christ in the Eucharist and just in silence as they're reflecting on this and leading us in that meditation, um, imagining being put in the scene of, is going to John the Baptist, being baptized, the Holy Spirit coming down upon him. So very normal in that sense of just kind of the Bible and you're praying with it, you're before Jesus. But as I was praying there, and I think this is something with adoration, with the Eucharist in general, not just in adoration, but when we're receiving it too, is that there was this recognition of, okay, there's this presence before me and it is Jesus. And so you're just praying and staying open to that presence is kind of directing the prayer towards the presence, right? In a sense, which is what we desire and how we encounter friends and and family and spouses or whatever in our lives. So that was something that really, so in that moment, the actual experience was I was putting myself in the scene and for whatever reason, I ended up next to Jesus in the water, kneeling down and he turned towards me, which wasn't something they were saying, right? Uh, And, you know, just kind of, said a few words in that moment, which is something I really needed to hear at that time in my life. Right. Uh, and, uh, and so it was really, really profound encounter with Christ of he's, he's right there in the Eucharist and actually in this prayer right now, he's speaking to me about something very specific in my life. And so, um, yeah, very, very, uh, profound, uh, um, <laughs> uh, deep encounter where it's this personal, you know, couple words but something that um, has been on your heart and then just like speaks to you very powerfully. So that would be one example of, okay, before the Eucharist and adoration and experiencing that type of, of personal word or love of Christ there, uh, where you're directing him, you're directing your heart and your attention, your mind to the Eucharist in silent prayer, basically. Right. So. Does that kind of make sense? Then? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And
0: that's wild. I love I love that style of prayer. I personally haven't tried it, but several of the other priests that I've talked to mm-hmm. have mentioned that that is a such a powerful way to just like put yourself in the scene. And I'm like that just blows my mind. Like I think that that's yeah. incredible. Um I think it was Father Bateman and I were talking about it and he was doing a prayer around the nativity for Christmas time. They were talking about being at the birth of Christ and he asked Mary to hold the baby. And I was like, oh, my gosh, like to actually be able to do that in prayer is just wild. And I can't believe I haven't tried it yet. So Mm -hmm. that's on my list. (laughs) Yeah, yeah,
1: it's it's I, I actually just gave a homily on it. Not this last weekend, but the weekend before of just, yeah, what is what is prayer supposed to be? It's all these different things, but one of them is silent, meditative prayer. So just to be able to to be in silence and to believe that when we're we're meditating, really we're just reflecting or imagining or all those different things, that God can use that and speak through that very powerfully. So it's it's really beautiful and I think important to encourage people because again I I'd never really done that until college and someone's teaching me and like you know doing that. So unless you're kind of taught into that or, or, you know, showed how to do it, uh, yeah, it makes sense. And not a lot of people have heard of it before, but, but it's good to be able to talk about that and say, yeah, just, just put yourself in the scene or just imagine, or just, you know, go over the words a couple of times slowly. And then it really can be very powerful of, you know, an encounter with Christ because he wants to use that and he wants to speak to us. So
0: right. anyway. absolutely. Yeah. Throughout history, there have been hundreds, if not thousands of reported miracles with the Eucharist. hmm in our last episode, Father Bender mentioned one where he had gone on a pilgrimage to see a host that had bled or was congealed with blood. Have you ever seen or experienced a Eucharistic miracle?
1: Yeah, that's a wow, That's a great question. The, the, I would say kind of similar and a little bit to the last answer, but I haven't experienced that type of miracle when people, I guess, usually say Eucharistic miracle, they're usually thinking of that type of thing that Father Bender had mentioned of, okay, the the Eucharist is actually like bleeding or actually, you know, something is happening to a physical change to the Eucharist there. And there are an incredible amount of testimonies of those things happening. Um, yeah. A lot of sites you can go to in, in, especially in Europe, but around the world where it's like, here's, you know, this miracle that's still kind of happening. Like it's still here. You can test, the Eucharist and, and, and there's this incredible tests that have been done of like, it's heart tissue and it's, you know, the same blood type of particular, thing. like, it's crazy. That's wild. I, yeah, I, I should have maybe pulled it up, but I, anyway, <laughs> but it's, it's really beautiful. Um So two, maybe quick things on that. So I haven't experienced anything like that necessarily. I would say that there's way, way more miracles that are happening on a regular basis not just miracles of like faith, but also miracles of healing that we don't necessarily hear about. So one quick thing that I will, there's so many. One quick thing that I will say is very recently, one of my parishioners, uh, a woman in my parish was sick with COVID. She, you know, she was doing okay, but definitely very sick. And, uh, you know, has this deep devotion to the Eucharist and just desire to receive it. And eventually was brought the Eucharist by one of our other extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion. And she received the Eucharist and she was telling me this later that it, she was like, I probably going to have long COVID, you know, I'm going to have this thing forever just feels like it might be that. And, uh, she just had this almost immediate kind of physical healing that she experienced. And it, and she was telling me this very emotionally, uh, maybe only a month ago. Right. So, yeah, I mean, there's no. I can't necessarily like bring that before scientists and say like here's this exact, you know, miracle um but so that's one little example of like a physical miracle that just kind of happened but um but there's I think and this is Christ's primary desire too, right, is the physical miracles are all meant to lead to the spiritual, you know, growth closer to him in our lives. And so those are the miracles he cares about most. And those are the miracles I think that happen the most often are miracles of like of faith, of spiritual healing, of, of um, yeah, all of those different aspects of our life. And so that's what I would say is kind of this, what I've experienced personally more often is these powerful encounters with Christ of, of, you know, not just maybe his mercy and consolation and love powerfully, but also what we don't usually desire which is like a word of exhortation or challenge or whatever right which can lead to this this greater conversion and um, and closeness to God and so that can also be uh, a miracle of the Eucharist of hearing his words speak into our lives powerfully and maybe one little quick analogy you can also cut me off anytime I'm speaking too long by the way but the analogy of like we often don't the, like the Eucharist can change us, is one of the things that you said. We often don't necessarily in our spiritual lives see the change as this big. I mean, we desire these big, like, retreat moments and, and top of the mountain, right? Transfiguration moments. But often God is doing it little by little in our hearts, the transformation. And so you think of having a garden or, or you have a, a, a plant or flower back here. And, and when you look at it and you're, you're watering or feeding it and you, and you see the tree or the thing. Grow little by little, but you don't actually, when you're watching, you don't actually see it grow, right? And so to realize that that can be what's happening to us in our life of faith, of supernatural hope, of supernatural love, of virtue as well, that the Eucharist is, is doing that, changing us, right? As we're trying to grow in those ways in our life, uh, that Christ is, is doing that through the Eucharist in our heart. So, anyway, that's a long answer to I haven't experienced the miracle in that sense of the physical miracle. Um, But, uh, and I haven't been able to go to a pilgrimage site other than seeing videos and and different things online. But, um, but yeah, I've certainly uh, had many powerful, powerful encounters um, myself and then hearing stories of other people and all of these different things. Uh, Yeah. Does that make sense? No,
0: it absolutely does. And I love that you phrased it that way. It's like, it's not, we, we expect something grandiose, but it doesn't have to be, grandiose to be a miracle. Like one of my favorite things is coincidences are when God performs a miracle and decides to remain anonymous. Right. Right. And when you say it like that, I had told father Bender, I'm like, I've, I've never had an experience like that with the Eucharist. And then when you say Mm -hmm. it that way, I'm like, well, there was this one time I was like in the, I struggle with anxiety and I was in the middle of a panic attack Mm -hmm. and I was like, felt called. I was like, I need to go to church. So Mm -hmm. I packed up my three kids who are all like six and under We drove Mm -hmm. to church. I'm still having a panic attack like during mass because Mm -hmm. there's three little kids and I'm already in the middle of it. And I remember getting communion and like feeling better. Like I wasn't completely out of the panic attack, but it ended a lot faster than it normally would have. And when you put it like that, I'm like – (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. oh that was an experience right, so right. oh i love that you they it doesn't have to be what we traditionally think exactly like, you can exactly. have these little moments and yeah. god just decided to remain anonymous right
1: right that's I yeah love that's that. beautifully said in that sense of god deciding to yeah remain anonymous i love yeah. that as well a way of connecting that but yeah it's uh that's yeah thanks for sharing that that's also that's really beautiful
0: <laughs> at the end of the liturgy of the eucharist the priest puts the hosts back in the tabernacle Mm -hmm. and I used to be an altar server. So I like remember the whole spiel, Gotcha. but why does he actually put them back in the tabernacle? Like, does Mm -hmm. it stop being the body and blood of Christ once the mass is over and it's just hanging out in the tabernacle?
1: Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We certainly believe that it continues to be the body and blood of Christ uh, in the tabernacle. And, um, you know, you think about, um, the words of Jesus and it's, it's not, there are certainly some Christian churches who not only, okay, this is kind of a symbol and they might even believe that, you know, we're growing closer to God in that moment. So you're, you're receiving Christ even more in that symbolic Eucharist or communion that they're doing. Right. But we to take it very seriously. And, and it's, it's this, this substantial change. So it's not just a, a, you know, Christ coming down, and kind of like being like around the bread in order to, you know, come into us. It's no, he's, he's substantially the bread itself. You still can look at the atoms and it's still the same substance that makes up bread and wine when you might do a microscope. But in general, the substance, what immaterially holds all of that together is, is Christ fully truly. And so it's this, promise he's made to us of I will be present um when you you know follow this kind of thing I've given you at the last supper of you know uh take this eat of it this is my body and so much more in the gospels of that teaching of you know John chapter 6 is kind of this incredible right teaching of that but okay but then if Jesus is really present then he wants to not just be present to us in the mass but then to be, give us that opportunity to be physically present as we were kind of mentioning with adoration before and also anytime you go into a catholic church it's this powerful moment of okay i not only see the usually the beautiful tabernacle but then the candle usually the red candle but that's always lit of it's not just a beautiful church hopefully but a a presence that is there and it's a real presence of okay i'm going and I'm, I I know that Jesus is there one of my favorite kind of lines and and uh things to think about when you go into a catholic church is god's desire for us to in, to encounter his love right so one of the things with the eucharist is it's such a mystery because it's it's okay it's jesus but it's you know god become man jesus is is just a human being which is what we would desire to encounter But it's God become man. So in his soul, he has a human soul, but also the infinite God is present, fully present there. So the infinite God who created every ounce of atom and energy in the universe, right? It's just, it's impossible for us to imagine. You have to start with God being this. And so how small he makes himself in communion that we're able to even encounter, like even like be able to handle that right it's this infinite power that we're taking in so when you think about the tabernacle then and and jesus just waiting being silent waiting there in the tabernacle it's this incredible thing of when you go into the church some people will think okay now i have to you know make myself attentive i'm tired and i have to make myself attentive or whatever in the church but in reality it's the where you start is there is Jesus, the infinite God waiting there for me to come into the church to pour his love out into my heart. Like he's his deepest desire is to like wait for us to do that, right? If, if we had a friend who, who we hadn't seen in a long time and they invited us over and over again to come and hang out just to catch up and just to, right? It'd be like, sorry, I can't come. Sorry, I can't come. Sorry, I can't come or something. And then if you went to that friend finally and they're just sitting there. And they're super compassionate and they're just like, you know, I know you blew me off 50 times, but I'm like, I just want to get to know you. And just to have that deep friendship again, we would be like, that love is so awesome. And then you think about Jesus in the tabernacle, just sitting there waiting to pour out his love in silent prayer. When we go into the church uh, building, yeah, it's, I think that's to think about why, right? Um, uh, why, Why does he desire to stay present in the Eucharist? That's what we, that's what we want, right? That's what we desire is again, this not just kind of in silence and praying for Jesus to be all around us. That's important and beautiful too, but we want to direct we're physical beings as well as spiritual. So we want to direct ourselves to the presence, to another. And that is where Jesus is in the tabernacle. Um, And certainly as a priest, as one last little thing is, is being able to take the Eucharist, you know, to the sick and to the. To the homebound, right? That's a huge part of of why we believe that too. Is anytime, time, uh, you know, I'm, I'm I have a, a call with a person who's very sick t- this afternoon, this evening, and so and they specifically called to say, "Can you bring me the Eucharist?" Right? So I'm, I'm going to bring them Jesus at their home. They can't leave, right? And so it's this incredibly powerful um, encounter with with God's love, not just at Mass, but then continuing uh, on. So
0: that's awesome. I love yeah. that beautiful analogy of like the friend you keep blowing off and then you yeah. finally go over there and you're like, why did I keep blowing this off? Right. Because this right. feels so good to just hang out with you. I right. love that. So should we be preparing ourselves for the Eucharist before we receive it? And if so, what are some ways we can actually do that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. it's a great question. Um, oh, man, there there's so many things we can do to prepare ourselves. In general, I think just as you're walking up or as, you know, right after the priest receives and you're you know communion is about to start, just to, you know, even if you've been distracted the whole mass or your kids are running all over the place or whatever, right? Um just to make a little act of faith is so beautiful of just, okay Lord, I know that, you know, I'm about to receive you. Just help me to open my heart and and you know receive you fully so that your love comes into my soul and transforms me. That little act of faith is so powerful. Um, whether it's at the last moment right before we receive, or whether we have maybe a little more time to prepare leading up to that. There are specific prayers that you can look up, certainly that actually are for preparing to receive that saints or different people have written. And I would say one of my favorite moments in the mass uh Okay. There's two things. One of my favorite moments is the offertory. So when the gifts, people are bringing the gifts up and you're like, Oh, that's cool. You know, I know that family or something. No, but it's, it's, this. it is supposed to be the symbol of, okay, yes, we don't make bread and wine. Our neighbors don't make that anymore. And we bring it up in the same way as they used to, but it's this, not just we're bringing up the work of our hands, but we're supposed to think of our entire last week and everything we went through the last week. And we're like bringing all of ourselves in our last week to Christ and saying, I'm giving this to you and I want to offer it to you as a prayer. It's a little sacrifice and I want to be united to you fully um, in the Eucharist. And so to, uh, there's so much more than that, but just to think of, okay, Lord, what is this communion with you, this union with you going to do? It's going to be this prayer of this offering that I'm giving and it's going to be this this union that we talked about earlier can change us. And so you're, you're trying to kind of lead, lead all of that to that moment. And so one other quick thing was just the, uh, in the Acts of the Apostles, one of my favorite passages is the, the, or no, this is in Luke. This is the end of Luke with the, um, the apostles going to Emmaus, right? And, uh, the disciples. And so there's two men, uh, on the walk to Emmaus after Jesus is crucified and died and he's buried, right? And so they're going on on the third day, and Jesus has risen from the dead. they don't know he's risen, but he appears to them, and they're they kind of don't recognize him in his glorified body, and anyway he's he opens the scriptures to their minds, like all the scriptures about you know the Old Testament and the Messiah, and that this was prepared, that he had to die, and then he comes in their house, and it says, "He took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them." This fourfold action that's said the same in John six, the same in the gospels took blessed broke gave we say that same thing now at the mass and uh and then and then he it says after he broke the bread, he disappeared from their sight, and all that was left was the bread, and he was revealed to them in the breaking of the bread. The disciples encountered Jesus in the first mass right right there, right but it was first the opening of the word to their minds and then the first mass. And so one of the awesome things is to the whole mass be thinking in all these prayers and all these things and all the homilies, whatever happening, is there just one word that you might be saying to me throughout this whole mass, right? And then you can take that word or that phrase or whatever with you and kind of use that word as a meditation as you're receiving the Eucharist as well. There's, yeah. So there's, So many ways that we can prepare ourselves to receive. Again, the first thing I think is the most important, just it's okay if you're not perfect or whatever. And it's just a little act of faith of my heart's not perfect, but I'm just trying to like prepare and receive you and be united to you perfectly. So I said a lot
0: there. No, so. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And I am for sure guilty of being one of those ones like, okay, this road gets up and then I'm going to get up and we're going to walk. And you're so focused on like right. the actual walking and like exactly. making sure you don't trip and like, oh, mm-hmm. I got to remember to bless myself and all that, that you forget to like listen. Yeah. And I love the being able to find a word. Because Jesus was great at repetition. He repeats himself a lot yes. because as human beings, especially nowadays, I heard, I was listening to um, a podcast where they were saying that human beings now need to be exposed to something 11 times. It used to be like seven or eight, but our attention is that of a baby goldfish. Right. So you need to hear it like 11 times. And Jesus was ahead of his time. He's like, oh, I know you got to hear it a whole bunch because you haven't been listening so far. He knows. He
1: knows. Yeah. (laughs) I think that's,
0: I think that's awesome. And I think that's something that I'm going to take to the pew to practice. Yeah. No, very cool. The catechism says that we need to have gone to confession before receiving the Eucharist. Otherwise it's considered a mortal sin. Mm Mm-hmm. So does that mean we need to be going to confession every week?
1: Sure. That's a, yeah. That's a great question. Uh, I think if I'm being honest, this is one of the most kind of unmisunderstood things. And the to kind of cut to the chase in a certain sense of okay, well, what does the church teach? One of the things is it is you need to go to confession before communion, only if you've committed a mortal sin already, right? Mm-hmm. And so. Uh, you know, if you certainly we always commit are committing little sins or even maybe bigger ven- venial sins, but we're we're committing so venial and mortal, big and small. Um, uh, so venial sins are the smaller ones. If we're committing, you know, a lot of, of venial sins, it's yeah, we don't technically have to go to confession before, before we receive if it's just a venial sin, right? So, so if it's a mortal sin, that is what the church. Is encouraging, and well, not just encouraging, it's saying, you do you need to go to confession if you've committed a moral sin before you receive? You should still come to Mass, but if you haven't been able to go to confession, uh, you should not receive the Eucharist, right? And so, one of the, I think this is one of the harder things for priests in general right now, because there is kind of this misunderstanding of that teaching, right? And not a lot of people know, uh, which again is can be a hard thing to talk about what is a mortal sin and have I committed one and, and all of that. Right. And so to be able to talk about that is one of the harder things I think that priests have to do, but we do it somewhat often in personal conversations and once in a while homilies and stuff. And so one of the analogies uh, that I heard one time that is, I think is really good. And it, and it's, it's kind of, it's kind of vivid, but I mean, it's, it's good is, is the analogy of, okay, well, what's happening communion and why Why would we need to go to confession before receiving that, right? It's this most intimate communion, this most intimate union with Jesus himself, right? And so if there is some huge sin for real that we've committed, you would want to be reconciled to a person before you engage in that union or that communion with them, right? So what's the most intimate communion that we have as human beings? It's a marital relationship, right? Uh, the marital act of intimacy. And so in general, if there's some huge, again, not just something small, but if there's some huge sin or some huge offense that has happened in, in a relationship, in general, you're you're going to want to reconcile before that action occurs, right? And so that's again just a kind of cut to the chase of that analogy. But it's, it's, I think it's really beautiful to just understand that it's, yes, it is God's love in communion. It's God's love in the Eucharist. But it's also, as we were saying a little bit earlier, it's you know the infinite, perfect you know goodness of this of the infinite God. It's you know it's perfect goodness, perfect truth, perfect beauty. We are truly not worthy to be united to that. Uh, it's a gift. It's not just um, something that every person should be able to just do. And so uh, and so a part of that is okay. We are sinful. We're all broken. And if we have committed a mortal sin. Um, we do need to go. It's a super long conversation of mortal sins, right? Of, okay, a mortal sin is has to be a grave object. It it has to be full freedom. It has to be full knowledge, right? If you're committing a mortal sin, all three of those things. And so, you know, if I tell a little white lie, probably not a mortal sin because it's it's something that, you know, might happen in conversation. I'm just saying it as passing. But if there's a big lie that I just think about ahead of time, I know it's bad. I know, you know, I have full freedom of it yeah that could certainly be a mortal sin right if, I, if if it's a big thing and and uh and so usually a mortal sin re- related to the Ten, 10 commandments or you know something like that but so does that make sense a little bit of it does of that 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 teaching of yeah it's it's this intimate communion and one of the things i think also helps a little is that the church does say that if we still go to confession even for venial sins eventually i mean i think the The bishops in the U.S. kind of say like, if you can go every other month, it's so powerful every month or every other month. It's so powerful to go to confession. If people want to go every week, they still can, even if they're not committing mortal sins. But but yeah, it's something that we've kind of lost, I think, in the church in the U.S. of that understanding to see it come to life a little more powerfully of that teaching of it's this intimate union with Christ. It's not just, you know, this thing to kind of. Feel good and, and just be kind of the love without the other aspect of that, uh, the commitment and the, and the, that what sin is too. So, um, so, uh, so yeah, which is hard to talk about today of like sin and what it is, right? Right. Cause um, it's
0: so muddy now. Yeah. Yeah. Of like,
1: yeah. Well, I think there's just a lot of misunderstanding of what, of what sin is. There's just a lot of misunderstanding and, uh, and it hasn't been. I myself need to do better. Like we haven't taught it super well and clearly. And, uh, and so, but when you understand that part of it, I think it does make a little bit of sense of, oh yeah, it's this most intimate communion with Christ. And so, you know, if the church really believes that this is a serious sin, then I should be forgiven by Christ in confession before I'm, I'm going to, to partake in that union with him. Right.
0: Yeah, no, and I, I, I loved your explanation. I think, I think maybe somebody who isn't Catholic or maybe somebody who hasn't been back to church in a long time
1: mm-hmm.
0: probably found it a little bit intimidating sure. of like, well, yeah. I haven't been to confession. Well, then I can't go to church. Well, right, not necessarily. Right. You should go to confession, but mm-hmm. unless you've committed a mortal sin, if I'm understanding correctly, yeah. then you know, going as often as you can is recommended. Yes. but going to the mass and receiving communion. Does help with some of the venial sins?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the church even says that it's certainly possible. We kind of try to unite ourselves when we're receiving. And if we just have venial sins, you can be forgiven by Christ, right? Kind of makes sense. You're being united to perfect love itself. Like You can be purified and transformed and forgiven of those sins in communion. But again, it's not just a kind of mechanical thing of, Oh, I received communion, so I'm always forgiven of all my venial sins right, right? It's a right. relational thing, and so we we ask Christ and say, "Please forgive me, but the next time we go to confession, which is another thing by the way, even the church says you technically don't have to confess all of your venial sins and you only have to confess the mortal sins technically in confession, but it's great to confess your venial sins right if you can just to right why not yeah, right just You're there <laughs> to be cleansed of them and just to have that you know that sacramental experience and Certainly, I mean, I'd love to talk for hours on confession, right? I mean, I feel like I talk about that all the time at the parish of people are kind of afraid to go to confession or they feel like the priest will judge them or whatever. And and it's the exact opposite reality of it's so beautiful. It's so transformative. You know, the most sacred promise a priest makes, right? The seal of confession. They're not even going to hint at what's happening in the confession room. And so to, to realize that, that the priests are just there to try to help you and to help you experience the mercy of God. And so it's so, you know, to just say again, do not be afraid of confession. It's so awesome. Um, uh, and I understand that intimidation, right? Thing of if you haven't been back, oh man, it feels like that's so intimidating, but the mercy of God is is infinite. It's endless, right? Even if we've done something that we are having a hard time forgiving ourselves for, God wants to forgive you for those hardest things. I mean, that's what he wants to forgive you for, right? There where we think, you know, I'm unforgivable. What about what I've done? You know, God, yeah, the forgiveness is so boundless, right? And inexhaustible, but it goes back to the the love being this, but he doesn't want us to just stay where we are. He loves us too much. He wants us to, to move forward in virtue and grow little by little. And so, um, it's both and of right. the, the forgiveness being infinite, um, and the love being always tran- transformative as well.
0: Right. Right. He doesn't want to turn us away. He wants us exactly. to keep coming back. Exactly. Yes. I love that. So, if the idea is to make us all God's people and receive Christ. Mm-hmm. Then why is it at weddings and funerals or other religious occasions that those who are not Catholic can't receive communion? Like at my right, wedding, right. it was like my husband and I and our parents and like nobody else was Catholic. Sure, sure. So Absolutely. our poor priest was standing up there like waiting to yeah. hand out communion and like yeah. nobody came up. So mm-hmm. why why is that?
1: Yeah, I really appreciate that question. And it's similar to what I was just saying, but there's I think something else that we can add to that, right? Of the, one of the words that Christ says in the last supper that Jesus says is, this is my blood of the new and everlasting covenant. And it's like, oh, that sounds pretty cool. Like, all right, new and everlasting covenant. <laughs> what does that mean? Right? When he would have said that, all 12 apostles would have been like, what? What? <laughs> because the covenant was the thing for the Jewish people. Okay. This is the covenant. Covenant simply means this sacred, oath, the sacred promise with God. And so when you start to study a little bit of the Old Testament, one of the first things usually you will study is all of the Old Testament covenants, all the Old Testament promises that God has made with Abraham, with Moses, with David, with, you know, all the different people in the Old Testament. He's made them over time, little by little, and these big, you know, promises. And when I say oath or promise, it's this mutual commitment to another person of not just, you know, of saying, okay, it's not the word that's often used as contract for it, right? Of, okay, I will be faithful, right? You can imagine King David saying, I will be faithful to you, God. Um, and God saying, you know, I will be faithful in this way. I will always be there for you. I will always, you know, help you. And so this mutual commitment from God and from God's people, but it involved, it always involved this commitment to, believing in who God was and this commitment to live what God was calling us to live. So the covenant, yes. Okay. A contract in a certain sense of here's what we're supposed to believe. Here's what we're supposed to power the moral life, right? We're supposed to do or live. So that's kind of the covenant promise. And that's always been not just there, but it's always been sealed by a sacred meal throughout the whole Old Testament. Right. And so every single time you see it be sealed by this sacred meal. One of my favorites, which might be a little bit vivid, that could be helpful is on Mount Sinai with Moses and, you know, the Israelites just escaping Egypt through the Red Sea and they're there. Um, they get the Ten Commandments from God and a scene that we might forget. It might be Exodus 24, but anyway, don't quote me on that. But the the they Moses is, reads, you know, the law of the covenant. He says to them, these are the commandments. These are the law. And the people are just, you know, kind of so moved. They hear the law and they understand that these are real commandments and real, th- but it's God's love. It's like God loves us so much that he cares to give us this and he's going to be with us and he's going to, we're going to experience his love. And, and so they're just overwhelmed. And then they have this sacrificial meal. They sacrifice animals and they're, you know, they will, they will eat them as well. But Moses literally takes the blood of the the sacrifice and sprinkles that upon them and says, you are now sealed with the blood of the covenant of this meal that you're about to partake in of the blood, you know, of basically God and saying, I stake my entire life on this commitment, on this covenant, on this promise, on this contract in that sense, but it's an entire self giving of oneself of not just, I love you, but I believe in the, this aspect of what you're saying, and I, I'm going to try to live this aspect of what we are saying we're going to try to live. And so, so you can kind of see how that is related to what we just said about, you know, kind of the wedding vows or whatever you want to call it, right? In a sense, and that, um, that commit, recommitment every time we, we receive communion, uh, of the wedding vows. And so, um, and so when, yeah, when there are Christians who love Jesus, absolutely, right? Who, Uh, are there or or people who are not practiced, but, you know, well, I just want to receive, you know, everybody else is receiving communion. That's what I always, if I have a chance, try to explain is it's, it is involved in believing in what we believe as Catholics and trying to live as what we live, believing in the moral life too, and trying to live that too. And so all of that is a part of the covenant oath that we're like the covenant contract, covenant promise that we're renewing when we receive communion. I know that might be a lot, but it's, it's like this, it's this incredible, uh, beautiful thing of this recommitment every Sunday, right? Of, okay, I want to recommit. And so when you say amen to receive, that's really what you're saying. Amen. You know, it's kind of like, yes, I believe, but it's involved in that. Like I renew my covenant. Like I stake my life on this. I, I commit my, my entire self to this. That's what's involved in that commitment. So it would be a, contradiction to, for someone to come up for Catholic communion and to say, amen, I believe the Eucharist is really Jesus, amen, and I believe all that the Catholic Church believes about Jesus and about how we're called to live. I'm recommitting to that. That's not what they're saying, right? That's not what they, so, so that's, that's, it's a long explanation, but I think it's important because it's, it's, that's what it has and truly always been too. One, one of my favorite early church fathers is St. Justin Martyr. And he talks about this in the 150s AD, right? Of those who partake in the, in the Eucharist and the sacrifice in, in the body and blood of Jesus are those who believe what we believe and live as we live. That's incredible that he says that, right? Um, in 150 AD, that, that theology is so developed and clear, right? Of the Eucharist back then. So, so, uh, yeah. You you can always cut me off, but I'm just talking and talking. But, uh, but yeah, I hope that that maybe is helpful a little bit. Absolutely.
0: Uh, Cause it's not like, yeah. we're, it's not like we're being rude and saying, no, Correct. you don't get to have this. Correct. It's we're, we're, we don't want you to lie and say that you believe in something that you don't, or Correct. maybe you don't believe yet. Right. You know?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So I think that was, I think that was a beautiful explanation of like, we're really not rude.
1: Correct. <laughs> Correct. And and we are, which is what I say too, like we're always inviting people to consider the Catholic faith, right? There's never manipulation or tricking people, but it's it's always just like we think this is true we we want you to partake of it. We're not just saying you can never partake of it. like we want you to be a part of the Catholic Church, right but it is it's this covenant commitment that that you know is beautiful um and Christ is calling you to uh and so um and so people only view it in that sense of like oh you're denying me you don't want me to be a part of this but no actually it's we want you to be a part of it but it's like this huge life commitment right um which again is the same as christ committing him his entire self right it's not just you know one way it's oh there's all these rules and everything no it's christ is giving all of himself in the eucharist as well as what you're doing so it's really i think incredibly beautiful but because of people's yeah experience and never hearing that before certainly or whatever they're going to you know in our day and age i think too it, it it's going to be hard to understand but we have to just try our best to explain that right. to others yeah
0: absolutely it's it's the culmination of everything that we believe like in one act so you can't just perfect
1: <laughs> yeah you said it very well right that's awesome
0: so for those who are making their first communion maybe they're they've gone through RCIA <laughs> or they're in the second grade how would you explain to them what's going on in the sacrament?
1: Yeah. Yeah. The The first thing that I would say is just to say what we believe. Okay. Jesus is p- going to be present in communion. So for second graders, you really try to say, okay, this bread that I have in my hands, that's not consecrated, this is just bread. If you wanted to, you could eat it now. Usually don't give them any to eat because it's not great to just be eating the unleavened bread that we use as snacks, right? Um, uh, but, uh, but in general, um, it can be, it's just, it's just regular bread. It's just unleavened bread. So to just try to get that point across that there's a difference between before the mass and then it's, there's prayer said over it. And then it is truly Jesus present there when you receive it. So you just kind of try to establish that, um, and, uh, and say that one of my analogies, especially with second graders that I love is, The analogy of, okay, do you have a favorite celebrity or favorite famous person or actor or anything like that? Uh, even if it's a cartoon or something, I don't know. Um, and they will often say, yeah, I love this sports, you know, figure. I love this individual and say, okay, what if they invited you over and said, Hey, I want to come over. I want you to come over. I want you. I want to say some things to you and I want to, I want to, um, just get to know you a little bit most of us would have to be so nervous and you know kind of you know kind of be all prepared and try to dress up really nice and 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 you know be prepared for that encounter and to say how much attentiveness do we give to those moments with a celebrity and the words that they say we hang on that you know this celebrity said this to me you know um and then we come back to what we believe about the Eucharist. And we say, this is what it truly is. Every single Sunday, the most important person in the world is inviting you into, you know, a friendship with, you know, with him. And, and he wants to say these words that are going to change your life, a word of maybe just love or whatever, right? A presence in, in your heart. So to realize that that is the case, that that is happening, I think can be very powerful for the second graders to, to say, yeah, I, I would love to meet my, you know, my heroes of YouTube or wherever, but this Jesus is your ultimate hero. He died for your sins. He wants to bring you to everlasting life in heaven. And so to, to use that, I think can be really powerful. One of the other little things for RCA, especially that I try to, to get across is that, okay, yes, it is Jesus truly present. And again, to try to, Bring that to life, one of the things, which has really helped me in my life too, that can be a temptation is to, when we're receiving communion, to only go into it looking for a good, a good feeling, which is okay to desire consolation. Lord, give me your experience of your love. So I'm consoled. So I have that, but the way I had a friend in college who uh, was very blunt sometimes, but great. And he said, he said, sometimes I only encounter it or think about the Eucharist as like this. It's like good feeling, spiritual vitamin. And so like I go and I receive it and I feel good for a little bit and then I go back into regular life. Well, wait a second. Jesus is a person that's alive. Yes, he's the infinite spirit of God, but he is a person that's alive. And so do I, when I encounter that love, that infinite love, do I, am I willing to listen to the person speaking and leading me and directing me. So not only in that moment, I kind of mentioned this earlier of a word of of maybe exhortation or challenge or something we need, maybe just a gentle encouragement of yeah, continue on, right? Whatever. But also do I believe then that Christ is continuing with me, with that presence throughout the rest of my week? And to see it that way that we have this incredibly powerful encounter with the Eucharist but then it comes with us into the rest of our week and it's truly Jesus, you know, walking with us in our souls and it's the most, you know, beautiful thing. So to establish those two things, one last thing, sometimes in um, RCA, there's a lot of people that come from other Christian denominations. And I think a really cool way to connect it for them is, you know, when you say like, uh when they say, okay, my f- saved through faith, right? Once saved, always saved in that moment where they felt like they were saved, right? Where they had that encounter and that act of faith and Gee, I've experienced Jesus's forgiveness and salvation and love. And I know that I'm saved, right? That idea, they, they've made an act of faith in that moment. And they believe that Jesus on the cross 2000 years ago has transcended time and history. And that effect of Jesus on the cross, those effects come present to them and save them in that moment. The same is true, but even more so of the Eucharist. We believe that we are transported back in time for the entire mass. And we are sitting before Jesus on the cross. We're sitting at the Last Supper with the apostles. We're sitting at the resurrection, the entire Paschal mystery. We are present there. And it is an incredible thing to say that's where we're transported to in the mass is 2,000 years ago to Calvary to all these moments and we're meant to think of no Jesus is not re-sacrificed, but that love becomes present from that one moment in history and we can experience the effects of that and be united to that and brought up into that mystery so that is another thing that I will try to bring out of yes we want the mass to we want the music of the mass to be beautiful we want all of this stuff to be as beautiful as possible but even if it's not even if even if everything is kind of mediocre or whatever, we're still transported back to that to that two thousand years ago reality, and uh, we become like Mary like John sitting before the cross, like the Apostles' of the Last Supper, like uh, Mary Magdalene or whoever counting Christ after he's risen i i i want I don't want to keep talking but <laughs> uh it's something that's so incredibly beautiful those would be some of the things that I might Spend yeah, some time
0: no, it's very beautiful, and the reference to your friend about Jesus being like a vitamin—maybe yeah. he's not necessarily a vitamin; he, he's more like a personal trainer, and like you go nice. and check in with nice. him every week. Yeah. But then he like follows you throughout the week to that's make sure great. you're doing your workouts, you know? Yeah. yeah. Because you you do you take him into the world with you, like that's the whole point. Like, they what do they say at the end of the mass? Like, go yeah. in peace, right? To like love and serve. The world. Exactly. exactly. So it's it's not just a okay, I did my part, like now no, now you gotta keep going. You gotta check in with your trainer. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And the and the personal trainer that's not just there to say, Do better, do better, do better, but the personal trainer who's also, you know, a close friend or even Yeah, who's spotting
0: you on the rack, who who like picks you you up if you trip, you know. Who says
1: Take a break and like yes. just rest, right? Today's a like, rest day. <laughs> yeah, just realize how much I love you. Like it's okay, you know? That's the most important. Uh and so, but yeah, that's a beautiful now. The personal trainer analogy is awesome. I yeah, think it's great.
0: So piggybacking off of that, mm-hmm. after we receive the Eucharist, we go back to our seats and we kneel until the hosts mm. go into the tabernacle. Yeah. So why do we continue to kneel? And what should we be doing while we're kneeling? Are there like specific prayers? How do we practice listening?
1: Mm-hmm. Maybe just two or three things really briefly. One is for, you know, why are we kneeling? This is something for non-Catholics, if you ever invite them to come to mass, that you'll encounter right away, right? Why do the Catholics stand, sit, and kneel, stand, sit, and kneel? And the posture of kneeling is great to explain to people that when you are trying to pray, sometimes the physical posture of your body can be really helpful. Uh, When you're kneeling, it's a very humbling position to, to kneel and to be lower and to, you know, have that kind of, it like opens your heart to this, like disposition of, okay, this kind of hurts a little on my knees and it's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not in a power position, I'm kind of vulnerable and it really can help you to open your heart properly. And so that kneeling position that the church gives us throughout the mass in those ways and even after communion is very powerful to just try to help us to pray. And then after communion, certainly it's, you think about the most powerful encounter you've had with God that we've mentioned a couple times. It's this great opportunity to then just rest in that and, and to be, to be silent or to be singing a little of the song that's happening, but just to pray deeply and to talk to Jesus in the depths of your soul, right after that communion has happened and it's it's this perfect opportunity. One of the last things is, because it is the perfect way to practice listening and how we listen internally in prayer. But there is specific prayers of thanksgiving. I talked about specific prayers of preparation for the Eucharist earlier. There's even more prayers of thanksgiving that saints have written like afterwards. Sometimes even if you look in the hymnals in the pew, some of them, not all of them, but some will have prayers in them. To be able to go to and say, here's a prayer of thanksgiving that, you know, St. Thomas Aquinas or this saint has written and incredibly beautiful if you're not sure what to do. But you can also just talk to Christ as authentically from your heart and as a friend and say, you know, Lord, help me to experience your love in the way you desire me to. You know, what are you saying to me right now? What are you you doing in my life? What are you, how are you encouraging me to see you right now or see myself or, or whatever? And so. You're almost learning how to pray in that moment, as we talked about earlier with, with Lexio Divina or imaginative prayer. You're just trying to think of the risen Christ or Jesus on the cross or, you know, these moments and his love, that love, he's trying to, to pour that into your soul right now. So those are just a couple little things of after mass to, to pray in silence. Um, I'd love to, encourage people to pray even right after the mass ends, right? It's not a tradition at, at every church, but it's it's something I experienced in college that, you know, the little campus ministry, you know, which was a lot of kids, but it just was a tradition where everybody right after Mass ended, would just be in silence for a little bit. You know, some people for ten seconds, some people for a minute, some people for five minutes, ten minutes. But it's this it be, creates a culture of thanksgiving and and just resting in, in his love. And and so it's learning how to talk to him internally, learning how to listen. And those prayers of thanksgiving that have been written can help with that as well, Of what to specifically say. But just to be authentic is the best as well.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. So what would you recommend to somebody looking to grow more in love with the Eucharist?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. Certainly the most important thing I would say is just, again, to be Authentic when you're at Mass to try your best to open up. If you can, a lot of people might do this during Lent or Advent. Just if you've never done it before, try to go to a daily mass during the week and to say, Lord, I'm giving this, you know, additional devotional prayer. A lot of parishes now will have maybe one mass in the evening for people that work, or maybe they'll have one mass on an early morning or one mass on a Saturday morning. And so just to doesn't have to be that often, but if you've never done it, great thing to think about. Of I want to grow in love of Jesus and the Eucharist, so I'm going to do this. And certainly there are an incredible amount of resources out there. I think a lot of parishes have the formed.org now uh, uh, from Augustine Institute. They have a number of different programs, video programs on the Mass, one that's called The Presence and a variety of things like that. Some of my favorite books, if you've ever been interested in books, are uh, The Lamb's Supper by Scott Hahn incredible book on the eucharist his conversion from uh you know into the catholic church and uh another if you want more intellectual a little bit not too much but brant petrie has written a book on jesus and the jewish roots of the eucharist it will blow your mind uh, on how god has prepared for the eucharist to be here from all time and throughout the entire old testament so beautiful there are so many more books the last thing i'll say is that For books and this is a general encouragement too but to fall in love with jesus in the eucharist get to know saints who love you all the saints really do love the eucharist but get to know saints that might have even a particular devotion to the eucharist and not only because i think you learn about jesus in the eucharist through those saints you fall in love with him there but you see how jesus transforms them so powerfully through their encounters and their personal experiences and their, like we said at the beginning, little by little, uh, how his presence and his love for them in the Eucharist in communion is something that changes their entire life. That would be one of my, one of the most recent that you may have heard of is Carlo Cutis. I don't know if you've heard of him or not. Um, yeah, he's just, he was, he's younger than me. So oh, wow. He was okay. born in 1991 in Italy and unfortunately died when he was like 15, I think, but incredible story. And he's just he's just beatified. I'm not getting that wrong. Yes. He was like a young yes. Yes,
0: yes, yes, yes. Yeah.
1: So he one of the most well known things, I mean, there's so many incredible young life, but one of the most well known things is just he had this deep love of the Eucharist and he created a website at 13 or whatever, right? Of Eucharistic miracles. That was his website, and it's still online today. Oh, wow. Uh, where you can go online and see, and people helped finish it, but it was he did that. And, and learn how to program to create a website and, uh, you know, because of his love of the Eucharist. And so there's so much more to that, but, uh, he's one little example of a great saint that absolutely loved Eucharist. One of my favorites is blessed Pierre Giorgio Frassati, uh, Saint John of the Cross. This is so many, uh, John Paul II might be even a better example. Can I tell one quick story about John Paul II? Of course. Okay. This is, I have to just, this is so awesome. So he comes to the U.S. I think he came two or three times. I forget Pope John Paul II to the U.S. And one of the times he came, you know, he tours a seminary where he's staying or wherever he went to Maryland. Uh, St. Mary's Seminary in Maryland is one of the seminaries that he toured. And I think it was either there, it might've been in the rectory, but either way, he loved praying before the Eucharist so much that, he was like famous around the world, right? And so they would have him meeting all the presidents and all the most important people wherever he went, but he would always disrupt the schedule because he would just, if he was ever near a church, he would just go in and pray. So they actually scheduled his tours to never be by a church. So he wouldn't pray, but he went into this area. They had, they had beforehand closed all the doors in this long hallway and he went into this, I forget again, if it was the rectory of, or the seminary itself, but he went in there. And it just looked like a hallway. There was a bunch of doors the same that were closed. And he's going down and there's all these people lying in the hallway, greeting him. And he he stops in the middle of the hallway and he turns to his secretary and wags his finger like, no, 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 and and opens the door, which happens to be the door to the little chapel there <laughs> and walks in and prays for a long time before the tabernacle. He was a walking mystic, uh, really. I mean, he was a walking saint, right? Uh, but just this incredible love of the Eucharist in so many ways. Anyway, that's my last little thing of of look to grow in love of the Eucharist. Don't be afraid to get to know a saint and and see how they uh, have loved the Eucharist in a big way or a little way and how, yeah, it can be so beautiful and powerful to to encounter Christ's love there.
0: Yeah. Father Ben, thank you so much. This yeah. was this is yeah. such a good episode i'm like i'm really excited to get this out into the world and i hope (laughs) whoever needs to hear it it, hears it it.
1: yeah thank you i really appreciate the opportunity rachel and and uh yeah it's just yeah it's a great gift to all of us so we're trying all of us to to receive it to to live it out and to yeah witness it to the world it's something the world desires it's something that we desire so it's it's what it's what god has given us and it's it's jesus yes it's, it's beautiful
0: thank you so much for listening our goal at the Diocese of Harrisburg is to walk with you on your faith journey. So if this episode resonated with you in any way, the easiest way to show your appreciation is by sharing this program with your network or by leaving a review on your listening platform. You can also support us financially by making a donation online at hbgdiocese.org DAC and clicking the make a donation button. Thanks again, and we'll see you at church on Sunday.